Imagine you are all alone in a vast, sprawling valley, and all you can hear is the dull thrum of your own heartbeat and the wind reminding the grass that it can dance. What are you thinking? Are you thinking that the world is full of endless possibilities? Are you thinking that you might be all alone in this place? Does your gut tell you to move forward, to stay on this path you have taken? Or does it tell you to stop? What if we add a little urgency? Imagine you are all alone, lost in a deserted valley with no means of transportation other than your own two feet. There is nothing and no one for miles around, and you do not have a phone. All you can hear is the screech of predatory birds and the buzzing of insects in search of something to eat. You are thirsty and hot. Your legs have begun to ache and you're already tired. What are you thinking? Are you planning how to get home? Are you panicking? Do you know you will find your way out of this or has a little part of you already given up? How about we turn this up a little more? You are all alone at the bottom of a canyon and you are gravely injured. Blood pools underneath you in such amounts that you marvel a little bit at being able to create your own mud. The pain is blinding. It's the kind of pain that you tell yourself will be over soon, but just doesn't recede. It is an advancing tide and you're moored to your spot. All you can hear is the dim white noise that accompanies massive blood loss. It is comforting in a way that terrifies you. No one can save you, but you. What are you thinking? Are you devising a plan to stop the blood loss? Are there cars in the distance? Can you make out which direction they are coming from? Do you simply close your eyes and let the white noise seep in as the blood seeps out? That's the easiest answer. Let it end. Close your eyes and go to sleep. Do you give in? Or do you pull every single little glimmer of life from inside your body and remember that there are people in this world who love you and important things to be done? Do you have the strength to drag yourself onward and do the one thing that most people would consider impossible? The one thing that seems to be your only option? It seems so simple, and yet it's not. When faced with the obstacles you could never imagine, do you simply survive? I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. Leslie just got back from her honeymoon in Salem. Did you have the best time? It was the best time. I could talk about it forever. <laughs> we just did. <laughs> Thank God we got it out or this would be an hour and a half of Salem and then a little bit of podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad you're back. We haven't recorded together in two 
weeks. I know. It seems like forever. Well, I missed you and recording. I did too. <laughs> Sad times, but great times. Mm. And it's been a busy few weeks here at We Would Be Dead Quarters. It appears that we have a bunch of new fiends out here yes. in listener land, which is so nice. So welcome. Oh, and for the one gentleman who did not care for us at all and thinks there are three hosts on this podcast, mm. <laughs> we just really want to know how you knew about her because she never says anything. And we thought John edited out all the traces of her dead-eyed stare, energy-sucking hiss, and blood-curdling screams. Ugh, I'm looking at her right now. She's so annoying. Get out. <laughs> but oh well. I guess some people are just too quick. Too quick. You just intuit her presence. We do, we do need to name her, though. Mm. Guys, give us suggestions for the name of our third host. <laughs> We debated giving the title to one of our pre-existing characters, like Barbara Daly Bakelin, or the Sausage Ghost. All the Sausage Ghosts would have been great. It would have been a really but good. We would have had the Sausage Ghost on. Yeah. Forever. Kill her. I hate cheaters. <laughs> Those are our front runners right yeah, now, yeah. you guys. But if you think of anybody else that might be like a really great third host, let us know. Yes. But uh, she does get to us after a little while, and it leaves us so worn out and dreadfully pale. But, oh, and I shouldn't say this while she's looking right over my shoulder, but I will anyway. You know how you can rehydrate our sad zombie-like husks? How? Oh, it's right on the tip of my tongue. Say it mm. with me. I don't remember. The, I've been the, gone the, so the, long. Come on, you can do it. Validation. Validation. There you go. It came right back to you. Wow, that was crazy. We got it. That's right, you guys. If you want to help us look and feel our best, you can head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It only takes a moment, but it makes all the difference in the world to us. Just don't mention our third host. (laughs) (laughs) And if you want even more We Would Be Dead in your life, you can head on over to Patreon and support We Would Be Dead. For just a few dollars a month, you'll get access to our patrons-only minisodes, we have one of those coming up soon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll do that very soon. Um, and our patrons-only monthly extra podcast, 30-Minute Horror Movies. You also get discounts in our merch store, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, a special gift from us, and more. And if all of that is a little overwhelming for you, you can simply share our content to your social media feeds or tell us when you're listening or tell a friend, tell all your friends, tell your dog walker, anybody. Then your friends can become fiends and we can all hang out together. How nice. So nice. Oh, and I know I keep promising this, but it's finally happening. Keep your eyes open this week for tickets to our live show at Tyndall Road Brewery in Bordentown. Patrons will get first crack at those. I think we discussed that, right? Restaurants and bars are now back to full capacity in New Jersey. Yeah, it's super exciting. So now we actually know how many of you we can accommodate. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Which makes the whole ticket sales thing a lot easier. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's. I think that's all my business for this week. Leslie, do you have anything to add? Mm. No. <laughs> no. 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 All right, then. <laughs> On with the show. We have a really inspiring case for you guys today. Or I guess I should say I have because you don't know anything about this. I have no idea. No. Leslie went away on her honeymoon and I told her not to do anything and that this would just be a surprise. And I did nothing. Good. You shouldn't. (laughs) Just enjoy your life. But wow. I was having an issue this week emotionally connecting to a case. And I think it was because we talked so much recently about women and girls losing their lives in the most atrocious manners. Mm -hmm. And so to reconnect, I shifted my focus and decided that what 
I needed, and maybe what we all needed, was to talk about someone who, against all odds, survived. Oh. Yeah. Mary Vincent is just that. A woman who lives and creates and speaks out, even though by all accounts she should have lost her life at the hands of a monster in the bottom of a canyon 43 years ago. Wow. Before we get to what happened to Mary and how she literally crawled her way out of hell to slam the hammer of justice down on her attacker, let's talk about where she came from. Mary Vincent was born on May 17, 1963 in El Centro, California to parents Lucy and Herb. It's good, like, <laughs> 60s, 70s yeah. names. They sound like a folk duo. This is Lucy and Herb. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. Mary was one of seven children. And while we know she was born in California, she didn't live there for long. All sources tell us that Mary was raised in Las Vegas, Nevada. Oh. Yeah. Viva Las Vegas. But before we get to her child, Leslie, why don't you tell us a little bit about 1963? Oh, sure. I mean, I don't have anything prepared, but I have some things in my head it's that I know. full of knowledge. Yeah. Full of knowledge. What, so, what was the world like then? What can you what can you tell us? Yeah. Well, 1963 was the year of the rabbit. Great. Yeah. Michael Jordan and Johnny Depp were both born that year. Good year to yeah. be them. In TV and movies, the French chef Julia Child TV program premiered. Nice. Soap opera General Hospital premiered. Okay. Which is like still on the it's air. still going. Yeah. Grey's Anatomy. Just for a thousand years. Forever. <laughs> In 1962, the year before, James Bond film... Dr. No was released, mm -hmm. but then in 1963, it was premiered in the U.S. Oh, mm -hmm. so we had to wait. We did. That's fine. Yeah. I wasn't there. It's fine. And Let's Make a Deal premiered on NBC, too. Fun. Lots of good TV shows. Mm -hmm. In music, the Beatles released their first album. Oh, that's a big deal. Please, please me. Yeah. Please. <laughs> the term Beatlemania was first used during this year. But Paul McCartney would later this year be caught speeding and his license would be suspended for a whole year. Oh, no. For speeding. like That's insane. Was I he know. drunkenly speeding? No, it just said for speeding. Was he going 400 miles an hour? He might be. Maybe. Don't. We don't know. He'd be like, you need to take a year off, reassess your life. <laughs> it was way too fast. Yeah. <laughs> Go do yeah. something else. Now you got to walk. I, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> The number two song was Puff the Magic Dragon by Peter, Paul, and Mary. Aww. On May 12th, Bob Dylan walked off the set of The Ed Sullivan Show, and censors would not allow him to play Talkin' John Birch Paranoid Blues. My dad's name is John Birch. Oh, that's not awesome. Not because of the John Birch yeah. Society. Good. No, no. <laughs> but people ask me that my whole life, and I was, they started doing it when I was like maybe four, and you a like, four-year-old's like, know. what? I don't know what you're talking about. There's a society for my dad. Okay, great. <laughs> like, he's a John Birch. I'm like, well, yeah, technically he is, but okay. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. In art, a pop art exhibition opens in New York City at the Guggenheim Museum. Mm. The exhibit was called Six Painters and the Object. Andy Ooh. Warhol was among the six painters showcased. This is like one of his first shows. What was the object? I don't know. Oh. I didn't look them up. There was like the different. Huh. <laughs> um, and then soon after, pop art was like everywhere. So this was like the explosion. And if you want to hear more about pop art and Andy Warhol, you can listen to our episode on Michael Alec. Yay. There you go. I'll always tie it back in. <laughs> <laughs> and then Place de Art, or Place of the Art, mm. opened in Montreal. And that was for our Canadian listeners. 
Thank you, Canada. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry if I butchered that. <laughs> we still love you, yeah. Canada. <laughs> in government, zone improvement plan codes came into use in the U.S., and today I learned that zip code stands for zone improvement plan codes. What? Yep. I did not know that. <laughs> I never gave one, not one second of thought to not what Zip Not one meant. thought. Nope. <laughs> I just accepted that into my life and was like, yep, that's it. That's what it is. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah. And two-letter abbreviations for U.S. states were introduced. So before that, you had to know how to spell every state. Terrible. So, so terrible. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C. Oh. But a few months later, JFK would be assassinated in Dallas. What and a then tumultuous fashion, time. I know. I know. There's so much happened. Um, and then in fashion, this is like why there's so much in my brain to tell you oh my about God, all of keep this. Going. I can't believe that I knew you all this stuff. Yeah. Logged that information wow. in your head. Yeah. <laughs> um, in fashion, the bikini rocketed into fashion popularity following the launch of the movie Beach Party, starring Annette. Funicello. Thank you. I love Beach Party. Yeah, and Frankie Avalon. (laughs) So I love Beach Party because I wrote a show when I worked at a dinner theater called Zombie Beach Party. That's right. That is based on that movie. It's like a parody of that movie, but there's zombies. Yes. (laughs) That's right. Okay. Also popular was an A-line duster. Wear it flowing in the smart A-line or cinch it with a self-fabric rope belt for that classic wraparound look. Give me one of those. (laughs) High-waisted capris with a back zipper and that come in every color imaginable, especially oh, yes. bright ones. Oh, I love it. Men's embroidered button-up t-shirts. Add a little bit of richness and elegance to your wardrobe with one of these distinctive three-dimensional embroidered sports shirts. And my favorite, the reversible skirt. Ooh. Are you a girl with many tastes? Then we have the skirt for you. Just turn it around. <laughs> no, turn it inside turn it out. Inside out. <laughs> Maybe today you're feeling more classic. Enjoy the solid colors of this virgin men wears worsted wool that feels smooth and has a rich look and lasting crispness. And tomorrow, just reverse it for a more fun, flirty vibe of plaid. I think you probably should work for JCPenney's and write their catalog. (laughs) And the three-in-one coat for men. What? Button in the collar. Put on the belt. It's a winter storm coat. I can't. Remove the collar, it's a dress coat. Get out of here. Zip out the pile liner, and you're ready for spring or fall. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Ugh. Go be the man you always wanted to be. I need that coat. And that's uh, 1963. You just blew my mind. (laughs) (laughs) So many good facts. I know. Wow, that was a good year. And Mary Vincent was born. And she's amazing, too. So, whoo, thank you. Mary's mother, Lucy, worked long hours as a blackjack dealer in a casino, and her father, Herb, repaired gambling machines, and in some sources say that he was also a mechanic. But there's, like, not agreement between sources on that one. So either he just fixed machines in general, or he also fixed cars. He was a tinkerer. He was a tinkerer. Perfect. The pair were hardworking, and they had to be to support seven kids. They had met during um, military service. It doesn't say where they served. It just says they both served in the military. And they both maintained a pretty strict set of morals and boundaries that they enforced on their children. So they were strict parents. Now, while I suppose some of the Vincent children were able to keep their heads down and follow all the rules, Mary was not one of them. She was a rebellious, free spirit, and wanted to experience life on her own terms. 
By the time she entered high school, Mary had begun wearing makeup and dating boys. Oh, my. Yes, which her parents were very much against. But as you know, the more you push a teenager away from something, the more they will run towards it. So, when her parents confronted her about the boys and the makeup, Mary would simply run away from home for a day or two. She also began cutting classes in school, and therefore her grades began to suffer. But Mary wasn't bothered by this because she knew that she was on course to be a professional dancer. Oh, nice. Yeah. Mary had danced competitively since she was a young child, and she was the favorite at the studio she danced at. Like, her dance teachers loved her. They saw great promise in her. In fact, her dance teachers believed in her so much that they had planned on having her audition as a lead dancer at the Lido de Paris Mm. in Las Vegas. Now, I looked up this show. In actual Paris, it is a long-standing, incredibly famous burlesque house. So it's like the Moulin Rouge almost. And so there were shows based on it that were put up in Las Vegas first and then in other places around the globe. So they are like a spinoff of this one really famous thing. So it's basically like think about like Moulin Rouge and okay. that's it's that kind of show, which to me was like you, you're you telling like a 14-year-old that she should go do – okay. Yeah. Maybe wait a little bit on that, just like a little bit. But hmm. they, they thought like she really had what it takes to, to do it. And they also thought that – her teachers had this, like, all planned out for her. They're like, you'll do it in Las Vegas, and then you'll go on to the shows that they have, like, the same Lido de Paris shows that they have in Australia and Hawaii. So mm-hmm. they really thought that she was going to, like, had, okay. had a future with this. So with her future already planned, skipping a few classes she thought she would never use here and there didn't really seem like such a big deal. But to her parents, it absolutely was. There were other reasons her parents may have been frustrated the two began their descent into a pretty nasty divorce at around the same time. Mm. Between Mary's teenage rebellion and the Vincent's impending divorce, things in their household had become pretty tense. One afternoon, Mary returned from school, and this is in like late May, so it's just after her birthday, or from whatever she was doing that day. I don't know if she was actually in school or not, but she returned home after a school day. And her sister came up to her and told her that her father was coming home from work early that day because he had a migraine and he was extremely mad at Mary for something. Hmm. She's like, when he gets home, he has a headache and he found out about X, Y, or Z, like you name it, and he's going to be like, he's going to take it out on you. And Mary decided that she just didn't want to face her parents' repercussions anymore and didn't want to be there anymore. And so... Just after her 15th birthday, she packed her bags and ran away from home. And this time, I know, and this time it wasn't going to be just for the night. She was like, I'm out. I don't want to live here anymore. Wow. Yeah. Mary decided she would hitchhike to Sausalito, California to live with her boyfriend in his car. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, but imagine you're 15 and you have an older boyfriend. You totally live in his car. Oh, for sure. Right. I'd live in John's car now. (laughs) Don't, though. (laughs) Where are you taking me? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The pair were able to get by for a little while on what money I I couldn't tell you. But then her boyfriend was arrested for allegedly raping a high school girl. Mm. Now, I don't know if this means someone caught wind of him being with Mary because she's high school age. yeah. 
or if this apparently grown-ass man had another younger girl in his life who did not consent to his advances. Mm. It doesn't say. It only says he was arrested allegedly for raping a high school girl. Okay. Either way, he's hauled off by the police, and Mary is forced to take to the road again. This time, she hitchhiked to her uncle's house in the little town of Soquel, California, or Soquel, S-O-Q-U-E-L. And on her way, she would stay overnight in empty cars. Like, she'd hitchhike as far as she could get and then, like, find an abandoned car and sleep in it. What if it's so cool? So cute. <laughs> so cute. Oh, you're so cute. You're so cute. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Someone will tell us. We have we have listeners in California. Me too. I would pronounce it SoCal, but I don't know. So cute. So cute. That's how it's pronounced. So, yeah, she would stay overnight in empty cars sometimes, which I don't. That kind of blows my mind, too. That seems terrifying. How could you just get into a car and not think, like, the owner of this automobile is going to come back? Yeah. And I why are there know. just abandoned cars all over the place? Kids are so wild. I I was I was not like this, so I, I don't understand this mentality. It's also a totally different time. It is, but still, I have no idea what. I I, I would have. Been I know friends that that were like this, and I don't. I would have it. died on the spot. Yeah, I could never have done this. First of all, the whole time I'd be terrified that I was breaking rules. Mm-hmm. Second of all, I would constantly think someone was going to catch me. Yeah. And by two nights away from home, I would have missed home so badly that I would have found a police officer and had them take me home. Yeah. I missed home the minute I crossed the street. Yeah, same. It's like, I should just go back. I They're can't so worried. I, <laughs> I just really want to be in my house with my parents. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, she, she did it. And she got by on whatever she could. Now, all of this hitchhiking is a terrifying prospect to you and mm-hmm. I and all of the residents of 2021. Mm-hmm. But that's because we now know what can happen. Yeah. This was that hitchhike. era. It was. This is the time in the same era as Bundy when you just didn't know that this happened to women and girls predominantly because there's no 24-hour news cycle. There's no social media. There's no internet. There's no nothing. You're relying on newspapers and the nightly news. Right. And that's local. Yep. Whatever you don't get in your area, you don't know about. 1978 was a very different time, and hitchhiking was frightfully common. And Leslie, I'm going to put you on again so fast, because I know your brain is just on fire with knowledge. Just, yes. (laughs) Why don't you tell us a little more about 1978? Oh, sure. I'm so glad you didn't say 1979. I would not know anything, but 1978, I know. Excellent. So like you said, it was a terrible time. Yeah. So what do we say in almost every episode? It always comes back to Richard Trenton Chase. Richard Trenton Chase. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. So the vampire of Sacramento was arrested on January 28th. Mm. Ted Bundy was captured on February 15th in Pensacola, Florida. Oh, so I made that Bundy connection without cross-referencing yep. it, and I was right. <laughs> okay. Uh, Kenneth Alicia or Alicia Bianchi and his cousin Angelo Buono Jr., better known as the Hillside Stranglers, were two serial killers in Los Angeles and claimed their 10th and final victim this year, but it would still be a little while before the police would then catch them. Yeah, this is like the age of serial killers. And and she's in California right now, right? Yeah. So this is all these people besides Ted Bundy. Um, This was also the year that Jim Jones got 909 followers to commit suicide. We will do Jones' children. I promise. 
Um, the first legal casino in the eastern U.S. opens in Atlantic City. So Coincidence? That's exciting. Oh, I think not. not. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Uh, 53-year-old Mavis Hutchinson becomes the first woman to run across the U.S. It took her 69 days. Oh, no. Yeah. you. She ran for 69 days? Yeah. I would lay right down in the road. I know. I wonder if they crossed paths. I don't know. Maybe. In movies and TV, popular TV shows were The Laverne and Shirley Show. Yes. Happy Days and Mork and Mindy. All these are shows I, I watched. No, I loved all these. <laughs> uh, the soap opera Dallas premiered on CBS. Mm. Bob Hope hosted the 50th Academy Awards at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles. Mm. Woody Allen's Annie Hall won Best Picture. George Lucas's Star Wars won six awards. And the top films that year were... The musical Grease. I don't know if you've heard of that, but vaguely, yeah, like it's mm-hmm. ringing like a few little bells. Yeah, it was pretty popular then. Okay. People sang it a lot then. Uh, National Lampoon's Animal House, Superman, and Jaws too. Oh man, yep. In music, disco was on fire. Mm. <laughs> the top song was Night Fever by the Bee Gees, which I had to look up and then was like, oh, it's Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> Oh no! I like it didn't click, and then as I as I looked it up, I was like, "Oh, I'm an idiot." You got it. You're fine. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Um, in the government, the WAC or W A C, the Women's Army Corp, was okay. disbanded, and women integrated into the regular army. That was nice. Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then this is a crazy story. Bring it. Okay. So 2,300 students in Harrisburg, PA, tried to set a world record for the largest tug-of-war game. Instead, disaster ensued. Oh, no. I hate tug-of-war. It's so stressful. I know. (laughs) The 2,000-foot-long braided nylon rope snapped, recoiling several thousand pounds of stored energy. Nearly 200 students lay wounded, five with severed fingertips. Hundreds more face second-degree burns. So I looked up the story because sometimes when I do these, I always have to, like, cross-check the date because sometimes it's, it ends right. up being the day, the year before or the year after. So I just wanted to double-check and then actually see what this story was. Because oh So when they said 2,300 students, at first I was like, okay, like, either maybe high school or college, but they didn't say college. They just said a town. Oh, no, so then babies? I was like, okay, like, high school kids then. Like, they're all these, like, grown-ass people, like, doing this thing. Let me read you the article. I'm so stressed <laughs> out right now. <laughs> On June 13th, 1978, in Pennsylvania suburb, the entirety of Harrisburg Middle School. No. Like, 6th to 8th graders. Oh, God, I'm going to throw Maybe 5th graders. Some 2,300 students, babies, lined up in a schoolyard and attempted to set the Guinness World Record for the largest tug-of-war game ever played. Twelve minutes into the match, the 2,000-foot-long braided nylon rope snapped, recoiling several thousand pounds of stored energy. Quote, it sounded like someone pulled the string on a party cracker, end quote, recalled 14-year-old participant Shannon Melloy. Malloy. Did they have the it like wrapped around their fingers? Why would you do that? Oh my god. Quote, I smelled something burning and I thought it was the rope, but it was hands. Ugh! I looked down and saw blood. Ugh! End quote. 
In the ensuing chaos, nearly 200 students lay wounded, five with severed fingertips, as I said, and one missing a thumb. Hundreds more faced the second-degree burns. And then this was the last quote. It was just a game. We just wanted to see how many could do it. (laughs) Oh, my God. Isn't that terrible? That's so stressful. The rope provided by the Pennsylvania Power and Light Co. had been intended for use in heavy construction was rated to withstand 13,000 pounds of stress. Oh, my God. It just snapped. These were children. This oh, my was God. Like, These, like, Hercules children? What yeah. is happening? And all their hands are burned. Some of them lost fingertips. That's crazy. I hate it so there's, much. There's a whole... Society of people, no a population fingertips. in Pennsylvania right now with no fingertips. <laughs> I hate it so much. I want to know where they are now. Will you encounter one in the wild with no yes. fingertips and be like, tug of war? Were you from Harrisburg? Yeah, you never know. 1978? I hated tug of war. They, we had it on like field day and stuff when I was a kid. Field and day, I, yeah. I, I don't think I've ever hated so much. Ugh. It like, it always hurt your hands. Yep. It was always like, so, oh God. Oh, I hate it. I, I wore my softball gloves. I came prepared. <laughs> okay, well, I didn't have any gloves, and I was a real wimpy little kid, so I cannot pull things very I can, hard. I'm picturing you right now. Dying. Hating everything. <laughs> just hating it. And then I'm like, what if they pull back, and I, I'm not going at the same speed, and I, they just bowl me over? I oh, can't. It was always so embarrassing, especially when the other team would be like, we're going to let go of the rope. Yes. That. <laughs> <laughs> That is, tell the person behind you we're going to let go of the rope. Oh, tell him that guy is an asshole. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Whew. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever get over the tug of war incident. <laughs> so it's 1978. A whole town of children is fingertipless. And hitchhiking teens who sleep in cars are not an uncommon or terrifying thing. Serial mm-hmm. killers are up and down California. I mean, they're everywhere at yeah. this point. That is like the golden age of the serial mm-hmm. killer. So while Mary is, she made it to her uncle's house in So Cool, and while she's staying with her uncle, she does some thinking and decides that her ultimate destination will be her grandfather's house in Corona, California. So she decides, I'm going to live with my grandfather. I guess, I don't know if they were particularly close, but she thought that would be a better way to go for her. And she was planning on like, going to go to school there, live with grandpa, have this new life. And this is about 400 miles from her uncle's house in SoCal. Oh, wow. Yeah, so this feels like an intimidating distance to just put your thumb out and arrive to, but Mary was unfazed by it, and apparently so was her uncle. So on September 29th, 1978, Mary woke up and said goodbye to her uncle and headed out on the road. Again, my uncles would walk into traffic before they let me just wander off and hitchhike away. Yeah. Do you know how old her uncle was? Like, I don't. I wonder if he and was, I like, a younger guy. Because there's so many of them, too. hmm I don't know. He could have been. SoCal is referred to a lot of times as a little village. Okay. So I'm thinking, like, does he li- is he, like, kind of a hippy-dippy type yeah. dude? And just, like, is, like, this is the life. You're just going to live mm-hmm. it. Go be independent. And she comes off very mature if her teachers were, like, you can do all of these shows and we've already set up your life. She comes off very mature. Yeah, and, oh, God, the saddest thing about that is that, like, this is an act for her. Mm-hmm. She is very much not... As mature as she plays herself. Well, of course, she's only 15. We know that. And she just turned 15. Yeah. It's September and she turned 15 in May. Right. So she's just like a stone's throw away from 14. Mm hmm. (sighs) Oh. 
Anyway, Mary was able to hitch a couple rides and land herself in Berkeley um, with a group of two other young hitchhikers. Berkeley's like 70-some-odd miles away from SoCal, so she probably got a couple little rides, and then Berkeley is like a bigger area, so she found other kids who were doing the exact same thing as she was, two others to be specific, and the three of them had like a similar destination. I think the other two were trying to go to Los Angeles, which is, I want to say... 47 miles, I didn't write this down, 46 or 47 miles from um, Corona. Corona. So they were like, oh, we're, we're kind of going to, we'll all stop in Los Angeles and then Mary will hop another ride on to okay. Corona. Yeah, so I like that. I like that too, but it doesn't work out. So they, you know, they decided to travel together for companionship and a little bit for safety, but probably mostly to have friends. Mary had gotten really crafty and instead of holding out her thumb, she had made a large sign asking for a ride. So she had a big sign to hold up. And so she stood there with her two compatriots, feeling tired and hoping to make it further along in her journey before the day was over, when a light blue van pulled up and a man who looked to be around the same age as Mary's grandfather leaned out of the window and told the group that he only had room for one passenger. <sighs> I know. And asked them all where they were going. No. Mm-hmm. Mary thought that she was looking, like, they were all looking to make it as far as Los Angeles. Mary thought, okay, if I can get there too, it's a major city, so I can kind of, it'll be easy to hop another short ride onto Corona. And this man claimed that he was going to Reno, which is nowhere near Los Angeles and in the complete other direction, but he would make this trip for Mary. He was like, it's out of the way, but I'll do it if you really need a ride. Oh, that's weird. Mm -hmm. Yep. Despite feeling a bit uneasy about the situation, Mary desperately wanted this ride. So she accepted. Oh, Mary. Yeah, and the other two people with her were like, we don't know if you should do that. It looks a little seedy. She was like, no, no, no. I'm so tired. Been on the road forever. I've been through all the stuff with her boyfriend, and she's already been bouncing around. She just really wants to make it to her grandfather's house and try to, like, be home mm -hmm. and have this place be her home. So she gets in the van. The driver was a man named Lawrence Singleton, and he told Mary that he was happy to make this impossibly long detour for her for whatever reason. First of all, never get in a van. Mm -mm. Nothing good has ever happened between strangers in a van. Nope. No one meets the love of their life or is given an amazing job opportunity or saves the lives of a thousand puppies in a random van. No, there's never candy. Never. Don't do it. I am staunchly anti-random van. Now, that being said, I am surely not blaming Mary here at all. She needed to get somewhere, and this man offered to take her. And to her credit, Mary said that she took the ride because she felt safe with him because he looked like a grown-up. Right. And she thought that meant he was harmless. She thought that a man of his age was trustworthy. And he should have been. He, she, you should be able to trust grown-ups. But humans are disgusting, and a lot of them do not deserve your trust. Take a moment, though, to remember this. Mary was 15 years old. That is a child. So she's, again, looking at this person like she said her grandfather. Mm -hmm. He was a hard 50 years old. He did right. not look. We'll get to that. But if you're, you're the sight of a person, your immediate association is like, Oh, yeah. there, or even just like someone who is of an age that they're going to protect me because yeah. I'm a child. You're not going to immediately distrust them. Right. 
not when you are at a certain level of innocence. Mm-hmm. And also her, she had already been hitchhiking a bunch and mm-hmm. all of them were fine encounters. Yeah, absolutely. But this, uh, this doesn't turn out that way. And while she may seem, like I said, like a street smart little city youth, she's like fast talking, she hitchhikes, she can make her way to different places, she makes friends on the road. She wasn't that. She talked a big game and tried to dress the part, but inside she was very naive and had never been given any reason to mistrust people. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes what happens next all the worse. it's, It's so funny to me that she talks about like, I was so innocent. I was just such an innocent little child. But when you look at the situation, you're like, wow, you're so capable. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just like, I, I reminded myself of that a lot of times just because so, it's easy to think of her as someone who like was in charge of their situation, but right. she really wasn't. No. So first, um, let's talk about Lawrence Singleton a little. Larry, as he was known by most, and that's what I'm going to call him because he's a Larry, was a 50-year-old merchant seaman. Yes, I said seaman. Hmm. There you go. What is a merchant seaman, you ask? Oh, well, I'll tell you. They work on a boat. It's just a fancy name for a person who works (laughs) on a boat. Mm -hmm. Usually it's a cargo ship, but sometimes it's one that carries passengers. But don't take my word for it. Here is a dictionary-style definition. A merchant seaman is an individual who works on board a water vessel to transport cargo across oceans and lakes. While the majority of seamen who work in merchant shipping handle cargo, some also transport humans and animals. That's exactly what you said. See? (laughs) It's nothing fancy. Larry is described in every single source I have seen, too, as paunchy. Oh. (laughs) Or sometimes if they're less polite, they talk about him having a large beer gut. Oh. Yeah. He's also sloppy. And wearing a blue jumpsuit, which is sometimes referred to as overalls. Mm. The jumpsuit was also in during this era. There you go. Just so you know. Fiends never go with a slovenly man in a blue jumpsuit. Mm-mm. Nothing good has ever happened between a slovenly man in a blue jumpsuit and a stranger. And let me tell you, he has earned these descriptors. He is not nice to look at. By this time, you guys have probably seen the photo suite because we usually get it out around the same time. He is just a creepy-eyed mess. He looks like a grown-up garbage pail kid that someone threw work clothes on so that they could appear in public. Mm. Not good. He has besmirched the name of Michael Myers-style jumpsuits. Well, I guess he didn't really. He did other creepy, violent, and awful things, but Mike isn't a rapist, and I will die on that hill. Anyway, Larry, who grew up in Tampa, Florida, but landed in California because of his fancy job on a boat— was said by most people who knew him, including his ex-wife, to be a pretty run-of-the-mill, mild-mannered guy when he was sober. But he had quite a temper when he got drunk. Larry had actually been married twice, once to a woman named Shirley, who divorced him in 1971. And then again, in 1976, he married a woman named Mary Collins, who divorced him two years later. And with his first wife, he had fathered a daughter named Deborah, who in 1978 was roughly the same age as Mary. Mm. Yep. She and Larry fought viciously. And later, it would be argued in court that Larry had an intense hatred for women, though in his entire 50 years on the planet, up until the point we're talking about right now, I cannot find record of him demonstrating it at all. Though he allegedly did have an incident on his record for contributing to the delinquency of a minor, that could just mean he bought a teenager beer. But there's nothing violent or sexual 
as of this time. So this is the first one. Now, this doesn't mean he didn't hate women. Not at all. Lots of violent offenders hide their intense feelings for years. It just means that this seems to be when it began. So back to Mary. Fairly quickly into their trip, Mary decided to take a little nap in her seat. She was tired from a long day of traveling and wasn't very keen on keeping conversation with Larry. As it turns out, he wasn't the mild-mannered grandpa she thought he might be. As soon as they pulled away in the van, Mary sneezed, and in some sources she lit a cigarette and then sneezed. I don't know which one it is. But Larry, after hearing it, placed a hand on her leg and said, let's see if you're sick. Ew, Uh Larry. Disgusting. And Mary was disgusted by this, obviously. I just looked up a picture of him, too. So now I'm like, ugh. Grown-up garbage pail kid in work clothes, right? Mm -hmm. Terrible. So she's disgusted. This disgusting creature next to her has just come on to her, and he's way, 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 way older than her. So she kind of draws into herself, turns toward the window, and goes to sleep. She's like, I'll just sleep through this. I'll get off when I'm done. It'll be fine. But this would prove to be unwise, as all of us right now probably are screaming into our phones or whatever you're listening on. No, 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 don't go to sleep. So when Mary woke up roughly an hour or so later, she could tell by the road signs that they were headed in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. Mary told him that he was going the wrong way and that she suspected that he knew damn well that he was going the wrong way. Larry shoved this off and said, oh yeah, yeah, I needed to go back to my house in San Francisco first. None of the directions match that. So that he could uh, fold some laundry. What the fuck, Larry? Larry had to take an enormous detour to fold some laundry, which could not wait. Again, you and I see this as a completely absurd thing to say. But if you are a child and an adult says this to you with full authority, you just believe it. You're like, oh, I guess you really did need to do some laundry. And Larry knew he was dealing with a child. Right. He told her it was just a little diversion, and he just didn't think that she would mind. And she actually offered to help him, too. She's like, oh, okay, I'll help you. It'll go faster. Oh, no. Mary, like, briefly bought this alternate plan, right? And she agreed to go to his house, like I said. But now she's kind of on alert. So she's not going to go back to sleep. And she's feeling very unsure of Larry at this point. And it wasn't long after this before Mary noticed that the road signs didn't just indicate that they were going the wrong way. They also weren't going towards San Francisco. They were headed back towards Nevada. Oh. Now, Mary knew she was in trouble at this point. And she spoke up again. But this time she looked around and she found a long pointed stick next to her seat. I don't know exactly what this is. And I I assume it's not like a stick from outside. It was like a piece of something that she picked up. And she aimed it at Larry and told him to turn around right now. So now she's threatening him. She's like, you have to turn around. Larry once again tried to tell her. He said, calm down. It's just, I just made a simple mistake. I must have gotten turned around on my way to San Francisco. He said, I'm an honest man and I would not hurt you. Mm -hmm. Mary's like cooling off a little bit. Again, this is a grown-up telling her with authority. Mm -hmm. Then he tells Mary, you know what? I have to go to the bathroom, so I'm going to pull off the road to somewhere a little more remote so I can get out and go to the bathroom. And if you have to go, you can go too, like on the side of the road. He's not stopping at a rest stop or anything, obviously. He then pulls off the freeway and down onto a deserted road near a canyon. And at this point, it's fully dark outside, and the small road that they're on is totally unlit and away from any kind of civilization. 
And at this point, Mary knows she's in trouble and that she needs to make a break for it. But there was just one problem. Her shoe was untied. Mm. And she thought, I'm going to get out and start to run, and I'm not going to make it that far unless I tie my shoe. So the car coasted to a stop on the dark and silent road, and Larry put it in park. Then he said, okay, I'm going to go walk over there, and I'm going to pee. I'll be right back. As soon as he was, like, out of sight, Mary bent over to tie her shoe, knowing full well that after this she was going to just make a run for it full speed into the desert and hope for the best. But she would not get this opportunity. As soon as she, like, picked up her head from tying her shoe, Mary heard a sickening crack, and then everything went dark. Larry hadn't walked away to go to the bathroom. He had gone to the back of the van to get a sledgehammer and struck Mary in the back of the head with it. Two times. And she fell to the ground. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. When Mary woke up, Larry was over top of her. He then forced her to perform oral sex on him. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. Then Larry threw her screaming into the back of the van and tied her hands together. Obviously, at this point, she is screaming for her life, but Larry told her that if she continued to scream, he would kill her. So she stopped, and then he raped her. After this was done, he jumped into the front, into the driver's seat, completely naked, leaving Mary tied up in the back of the van still, and drove a few more miles down the desolate canyon road. So he's driving... Towards nothing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Once they were well and truly in the middle of nowhere, Larry parked the car and climbed into the back of the van again where he raped Mary for a second time and then forced her to drink a cup of hard liquor that he was kept keeping in the car. He told her that if she listened to him and obeyed his orders, she would come out of this ordeal alive. Throughout the rest of the night, Larry continues to rape the forcibly drunk, terrified, and injured Mary. Oh, my God. Yep. By the time the sun came up, she was just begging for her life. Mary kept saying, please set me free. I won't tell anyone. Please just set me free. And this statement seems to enrage Larry, who at this point is pretty drunk. Now, there are some sources that say he was steadily drunk the whole entire time and was also drunk when he picked Mary up, but I find that questionable. And there is nothing that can prove it at this point. I think he got drunk as the night wore on, but I also believe that he knew exactly what he was doing when he kidnapped Mary. Oh, yeah. He wasn't just like, oh, I was so drunk, I made mistakes or whatever. There's none of that. And they had been driving for a while. She also would have been like, she would have mentioned that he kept drinking from this bottle. Exactly. I don't think he started until they were like off in the desert. And she had an older boyfriend. She knows what alcohol smells like. And she's been hitchhiking alone. Yes. For sure. Yeah. So now, enraged by Mary's pleas for her life, Larry shouted, you want to be free? I'll set you free. And threw her out onto the road. Now, mind you, part of my brain was like, could could she run? Like, what was happening? But she has a massive head injury. Mm Mm-hmm. And she's completely naked and drunk mm-hmm. and um, probably in pain in a lot of other places, too. Was she um, not tied up? So was she tied up? Yeah, but I think at this point her hands were free. Okay. At one point he does untie her while he's assaulting her in the back of the van because he's like, oh, if you're quiet and you obey me. Oh, I forgot that. Yeah, he, when he did that, when he's like, if you're quiet and you do what I say, that's when he untied her. Oh. Because he had so much control, he didn't need to have her tied up. She was terrified. And she also thought, again, grown up, 
okay, if I listen and do everything I'm told, I'm going to get to go home. Right. Guys, you're never, if you're in this situation, you just need to fight and bite and scratch and run and do whatever you can. Like, they're not going to let you go home. They're never going to let you go home. That is something they're telling you so that you don't do those other things. Right. Just bite the dick off. Bite their fucking dick off immediately. Yes. So while Mary was laying out on the road, she could hear Larry searching around in the toolbox he kept in the back of the van for something. When he returned, she realized what it was. A hatchet. He raised the hatchet over his head and severed her right forearm in three blows. Oh, my God. When describing the event, Mary says that her right arm was severed first and she, like, knew it was happening. Like, her arm was gone. It's, like, a very surreal thing, obviously. And then I think somehow after that first arm, he propped her up against the van or something. She was propped up a little bit. And she said, I kept thinking I was falling but she didn't understand why she was falling over. She's like, I was holding on to him. I don't know why I'm sliding over. And when she looked at him, her hand was holding on to him, but it was not connected to her body. Oh, no. So he had cut off her other arm too. So Mary describes the whole thing as like really, truly unbearable pain. She was not unconscious at any point in time. Now, while it's blurry and confusing because of the extreme traumatic nature of the event, Mary says she felt all of it. Larry would later claim that he severed her arms. Like, this is a real weird crime. Like, why, why did you choose to do that? He said that he wanted to prevent authorities from identifying her by her fingerprints, which, like, come the fuck on, Larry. Her head is still there. I know. Why are you worried about her fingerprints? He really genuinely thought that no one would miss her is what this was. He thought she was a concept we have not explored, I don't think, on this podcast yet, something that people call the less dead. Yeah. Which I hate. I truly hate this concept. And there will be an episode wherein we go into it. But it's basically used to refer to a lot of times they're sex workers mm-hmm. and people who don't have families or might be homeless that end up murdered and the cops don't really look into it. Right. Because there's no one to really miss them. And that's what he thought he was dealing with. So after he cut off both her arms, he shoved her down a 30-foot embankment and into the mouth of a cement culvert, which is a drainage tunnel. So she describes it as being pushed off a cliff. So this embankment was, like, very steep, and she was, like, tumbled down it and ended up in this drainage ditch. People magazine then quotes him as saying, now you're free. But they are the only source who gives him this quotation, and I don't think he was that clever. So I don't give him credit for saying that. Okay. I don't think that ever happened. I think he just fucking ran off. Then he got back in the van and drove away, leaving Mary for dead. He figured that she would bleed out from her injuries and be left hidden in a culvert in the middle of nowhere. And she almost was. But that's not the end of our story. Oh. Mary Vincent lay on the ground, gravely injured. She had a massive head injury. Her arms had been severed and were rapidly hemorrhaging. She had been kept awake being sexually assaulted and raped the entire night. She had been force-fed alcohol, which not only made her feel horribly sick, but also probably sped up the bleeding. She was battered, exhausted, completely naked, and near death. It would have been so easy to just lay down and never get up again. But then, a little voice deep down inside of Mary Vincent said, I can't go to sleep. He will do this again to another girl, and I can't let this happen. Yes, Mary. (sighs) This is when I, like, get emotional. (laughs) So against all odds, science, 
and logic, Mary then drug herself up, took her bloody stumps, and rubbed them in the muddy mixture of blood and dust to stop the bleeding, Mm, which is so smart. I mean, it wasn't going to stop it, but it slowed down any kind of hemorrhaging. And then she crawled all the way back up the 30-foot embankment and onto the deserted road, where she then walked three miles with her arms over her head to prevent the blood and muscle from falling out of them. By the time Mary made her way to a main road, the sun had come up. The f- and now she's still naked, yeah. bloody, no arms. Head injury. The first car she tried to flag down saw her and then sped off in terror. <gasps> I know. I bet wherever they are, whoever they are, they regretted this for the rest of their life. Yeah. But the second car stopped immediately. It was a kind couple who was coming back from a vacation and had missed their exit. And they knew she was in trouble right Right. away. The couple brought Mary into their car and wrapped her in towels and drove her to a nearby airport where they were able to call for an ambulance. Because remember, we're not in cell phone days. It's 1978. You need to find your way to a phone. So they thought, well, the airport will have all these emergency services. They'll be able to get in touch with them. And the only thing Mary could manage to say to this couple was, he raped me. She had lost... 50% of the blood in her body at this point. She should have been dead. Isn't it? I think it's 60%. It's 60%. So what I read this week and what I did on our, what the Saturday, said that at 50, you're at the point of no return, basically, if you don't receive any interventions. I think 60 is like legally dead. But once you read 40, if you lose 40 to 50% of your blood, like it's very difficult to bring you back from the dead. Okay. But she's a dancer. And she's talking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not only is she not dead, she's awake. Yeah. And it gets better. Okay. An ambulance brought Mary to the hospital, and the police were right behind them. So obviously you call emergency services. They're all coming to this. But Mary got to the hospital, and they were like, we got to put you out and give you medicine. She was like, no, I will not sleep. Don't give me any medication that will make my brain any foggier until I talk to the police. So she waited like that until she spoke to the police and gave them a full description of her attacker before she got, like, any relief. Wow. Yep. She gave the officers a description so detailed that they were able to produce a sketch that bordered on photo accurate. Larry's neighbors recognized the sketch immediately because it appeared on the nightly news. At that point in time, again, we talked about this with Ted Bundy when there's a sketch. They were able to project it to a larger, um, like, realm of people. Larry was tracked down real quick and arrested for rape, sodomy, oral copulation, kidnapping, mayhem, and attempted murder. I'm not sure what constitutes legal mayhem, but Mm -hmm. I'm sure this is it. So Mary's road to rehabilitation was really tough. She was fitted with prosthetics that had opening and closing hooks at the ends. I think she still has them. I mean, yeah, there are I just no, looked up photos and she does. There, none of the photos are super duper recent because she is basically in hiding. She doesn't want to talk to okay. people. She doesn't want to see people. She did her time where she talked to everybody. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now she's kind of done. And I'll get to why in a minute. And she proved to be like extremely adept with them. She's, she can do anything and mm-hmm. everything. She's unbelievable. And over time, due to her ingenuity... Mary was able to tinker with them and specialize them to fit her needs. Okay. Yeah, so she made it so she could, I mean, there was nothing she did in her previous life that she couldn't do with them. 
And five months after being attacked, Mary faced Larry again in a courtroom. Mm. And she had to sit and listen to a recording of the statement that Larry had made to the police when he was arrested. And his version of that night is real different, obviously. In it, he calls her, quote, a hard-bitten runaway who smoked reefers and threatened to maim him and accuse him of rape if he refused to drive her to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. He claimed that she had sex with two scruffy-looking hitchhikers who he said were probably the people who attacked her. It was those guys. And then after she had sex with the rough-looking hitchhikers, she offered to have sex with him. You know, she was like, okay, how about you next, disgusting old man? Ugh. Mm-hmm. So then she listens to all of that, just like badass stone face sat in her seat, did it. Then it's time for her to take the stand. She has to walk down the aisle in the courtroom and go directly past him. And when she is right next to him, he whispers something to her that makes her go pale and stop for a minute. But she continued to walk and took the stand. Later, we will find out that what he said to her was, I'll finish this job if it takes the rest of my life. Ew, Larry. hmm Mary refused to look at him while she gave her testimony, but she recounted every single thing that happened to her in a firm and steady voice. Now, because of this one statement that he said, she lived in constant fear of him finding her. Right, of course. And you'll hear why that is very rational in a second. In the end, Larry's absurd claims that it was two hitchhikers that had attacked Mary did nothing to convince the jury, who found him guilty, obviously. At sentencing, the judge said if he had the power, he would send Lawrence Singleton to jail for life. But unfortunately... Due to the laws at the time, and because Mary didn't die, he could only be sentenced to 14 years. 14 years? That's it. wait. Yeah, the maximum sentence attached to that kind of violent rape of a woman at the time was 14 years. But he was planning to kill her. But he didn't. That was the plan. I know. But... The laws at that time did not cover attempted murder in that way. They didn't, it, they weren't the way they are now. If you didn't go through with it, you were sentenced differently. But he went through with it. She just didn't. Exactly. That's why this is so fucked up. It was like a legal loophole. And even the judge recognized it. He was like, I am legally bound by the laws I have to uphold to sentence you to a maximum of 14 years. I cannot give you more. But I would if I could. Mary Vincent won a $2.56 million civil judgment against Larry, but she was unable to collect it because Larry revealed that he was unemployed in poor health and only had $200 in savings. So she never got her money. To add insult to the insane injury that was the leniency of Larry's sentence, he was paroled after serving only eight years in prison. Why? He was able to reduce his time because he was on his best behavior and worked as a teaching assistant in the prison classroom. So, eight years after her attack, the man that said he was going to finish the job is free. Yeah, I would go into hiding. That's what she did. She lived in a community where only her neighbors knew where she was, and her neighbors were really very protective of her. They really wanted to, like, help, help that poor woman, obviously. Larry was paroled to Contra Costa County, California, but... No town would accept him. Good. So he had to live in a trailer on the grounds of San Quentin Prison until his parole ended a year later. 
He couldn't be paroled anywhere. And everyone was like, no, I don't fucking want him. We're not going to be responsible for that guy. Right. According to Time Magazine, quote, as authorities attempted to settle him in one Bay Area town after another, angry crowds and Tampa's chapter of Guardian Angels led protests, screamed, picketed, and eventually prevailed. In Rodeo, which is about 25 miles northeast of San Francisco, a crowd of approximately 500 local protesters were set up in arms and forced officers to move him under armed guard from a hotel room. They tried housing him in Concord City Hall, but that was met with protests too. He was removed from an apartment in Contra Costa County in a bulletproof vest after 400 town residents surrounded the building to protest a decision to place him there permanently. Nobody wants this motherfucker. Nobody. The governor ordered that Larry be placed in a trailer on the grounds of San Quentin for the duration of his one-year parole, as I mentioned before. And that's because of all of these things. They literally could not put him anywhere. They had to leave him on prison grounds. Where he should be. Yeah, but in a trailer, not in prison. And people all over were outraged at his sentence. And it resulted in legislation supported by Mary Vincent, which now prevents the early release of offenders who have committed a crime in which torture is used. In 1987, Larry Singleton's parole led to passage of California's, quote, Singleton Bill, which carries a 25-year-to-life sentence, which is what he should have gotten the leniency of the legal system is just, like, such a, like, grievous error in this case, it seems to me. Like, I just can't believe that somehow that went through. Right. It feels absurd. Yeah. One of the um, journalists who interviewed him said, quote, What was most surprising to me, however, was not his sentence. It was that Larry Singleton had worked his crimes around in his mind so completely that they did not warrant punishment at all. So he was convinced. Right before Larry's parole, the Stanislaus County prosecutor at his trial said, I think if anything, he's worse now. He has not taken responsibility. He lives in a bizarre fantasy land and acquits himself each day. He doesn't accept his guilt and won't resolve never to do it again. So he was remorseless and convinced himself he didn't do anything and he wasn't sorry. And he still got released. It's so terrible. Mm-hmm. He was like, I didn't do it, but I'm not sorry that I did it. Basically. He's, ew. He's the worst. So then after he's finally released from his, like, parole period where he has to live in a trailer, he decides to move back to Florida because nobody in California will have him. In 1990— 19- <laughs> But Florida will. Oh, of course they will. Yeah. They're like, all right, Florida man, you come home. Yeah. In 1990, he was convicted of theft twice. He served a 60-day sentence for stealing a $10 disposable camera— Okay. Why, Larry? I don't know. In the spring of 1990. And then in the winter of 1990, he received a two-year prison term for stealing a $3 hat. Damn it, Larry. I know. See, he hasn't learned his lesson. Oh. Send him back. Oh, just wait. Okay. Before his sentencing for the second crime, the hat stealing, he described himself to the judge as just a confused, muddle-headed old man. Oh. That's a quote. (laughs) Muddle-headed, Larry. I know. Was it, like a fedora, too? No, he's just a dizzy old man. I'm just muddle-headed. Yeah. Ugh. I hate him. In the spring— That of- would be his voice, too, watching <laughs> you do because his, like, mouth— Ew, yeah. he, all of him is so gross. Ugh. In the spring of 1997, one of his neighbors in Florida called the police to report that Larry was assaulting a woman in his home in Sulphur, Sulphur Springs, Florida. 
So the police go out to Larry's house. They knock on the door. Larry answers the door, drenched in blood. They walk inside the home and find the dead body of Roxanne Hayes, who had been stabbed multiple times in the upper body with a knife. Roxanne Hayes was a sex worker and a mother of three. Okay. I'm so angry. Uh Uh-huh. This is all that Mary wanted to prevent. And she suffered immensely. She came back from the dead Mm -hmm. to save other people's lives. This woman's death tortured her, too. It absolutely tormented her. Of course it did. Mm Mm-hmm. She, I mean, it shouldn't. It should no, torment. It shouldn't. There are so many all interviews. the lawmakers and everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it should. There are a lot of interviews where Mary talks about like I just couldn't get ahead. I just like I couldn't. Uh, it seems no matter how hard I tried, what I did didn't work, and it did. And it's terrible because like she has the strength of like a fucking thousand men, and then a stupid loophole in the justice system is the reason this woman is dead. Yeah. So Mary Vincent. In all of her terror that she is now in because she's afraid he's going to find her and kill her, she travels from California to Tampa to appear at his sentencing there. Mm. Even though she had been living in seclusion and constant terror, she still, like, got together her strength and went. During her testimony, she described Larry's attack and the toll the ordeal had taken on her, and this judge sentenced Larry to death. Good. But as it turns out, he didn't have to. Lawrence Singleton died in 2001 of cancer in a prison hospital at the North Florida Reception Center in Stark, Florida. Mm. So he's dead. Okay. Mary Vincent now lives in a condo with her boyfriend and her two sons. Thank God. Where she is an artist and a victim's advocate. She's a painter. Okay. Yeah. So, like, apparently one of the ways she started coping with not being able to sleep because of the nightmares she had, she had, like, really vivid nightmares, obviously, was she woke up and she decided she was going to paint. Okay. She's like, I'm just going to paint a a face, like a really happy, handsome face. And with hooks for hands. And she was able to do it with, like, surprising artistry and accuracy. And after then, she was like, I'm going to paint. That's what I'm going to do. And she makes, like, really beautiful paintings. Wow. I know. But it was a long road for her to get to where she is now. She got married and divorced. She had her sons with one with her husband and one with another man that she didn't stay with for long. They were so poor and so desperate that she and her sons at one point slept in an abandoned gas station. It's wild that nobody, she couldn't get money from anybody. Well, here's what happened. She could only get money from like doing interviews, which she did do. Mm-hmm. She was on like, she did the talk show circuit, even though she really did not like doing it. Of course. It. And, um, and she got some money. But um, not enough. And so she, like, immediately bought a house, but she wasn't able to keep up with the mortgage, and it got, like, repossessed, like, right away. And her family was supportive while she had money. And then as soon as the money and the fame went away, her family also went away. (gasps) Her, like, parents and her siblings, who she just refers to as her family. She doesn't, like, call them, like, my mom and dad or my brother. But there's so many of them. They all went away? She ran away at 15 for a reason. I guess. I I don't know. She was so strapped for cash that she lived with those same prosthetics for over 20 years. And as they broke down, her neighbor, who was a mechanic by trade, would fix them for her. So he would, like, find parts from other things and fix these prosthetics for her so that she could <sighs> just keep living with them. Thank God for all these other people. Yeah. Like, 
Eventually, she met the man that she's, I believe, still with now. She doesn't really talk to press anymore. Like, the last interviews and, and like, stuff you can get from her are probably, I don't know, like, 10 years ago. None of it is super recent. But she was living with her boyfriend and her two sons in a condo. She's doing well now. She can cook. She can – she paints. And I think she sells her paintings. And she, like I said, is a victim's advocate. But she does not want people in her life. Like, she doesn't want the public in her life right now. So I did not dig super deep to find out where she is because none of us need to know. Okay. We know she's doing good. That's what we need to know. Mary Vincent is a testament to the will to survive. She lived for so long in fear but has paved the way for a safer future. And I, for one, am so glad that she's here. Yeah. Man. I know that was like a survivor tale, but I I know <laughs> feel like – Broken inside. I know, but she's she's good now. Okay. And laws were passed because of her. That's true, yeah. And he was finally put away for more time because of her. And even though it is horrifying that another woman had to die, if she didn't do what she did, it would have been more than that. Without That's question. That's true, yeah. Without question. He would have ki- he would have just kept killing women. So I think I think she saved a lot of people. Okay. Toast. Toast. Well, to Mary, a hundred times over yes. until the end of the earth. Uh, was it Roxanne? Was that the other woman? Yes. Yeah, to Roxanne. We hope her children are safe wherever they are. I know. I don't have much information about her. I would love to be able to give everybody all the serv- all the victim yeah. information I can, but it it just, like, doesn't really exist. Okay. So... Oh, and we have a new patron, we yes? Do. Okay. Nicole Thompson. Nicole Thompson. Sup, girl? Yes. Cheers, Nicole. Thank you. She's a best fiend forever. Ooh. What? what? Hey, girl. Hey. Yeah. We'll have some um, extra patron content <laughs> coming <Yes. up> soon. <laughs> we a, do, yeah. It was mm-hmm. a busy month, so we're going to get it in the end of the month, but. Then in June, we have our live show. I'm so excited Me about too. That. It's going to be the most fun. Yeah. And if we were forced to face the same tragedy over and over and find strength where there was none, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod and join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Just bite the dick off. Bite their fucking dick off immediately. Yes. <laughs>